Today's scripture reading is Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. You can find that reading on page 223 in the Pew Bibles. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. Would you pray with me? Father, you've already been so gracious to us in this service. You've given us so much richly to enjoy in the singing and in the sharing. And now we come to your word, and it's our prayer, it's our desire. Like Moses, he said, show me your glory. And we would ask that of you this morning. Would you show us your glory? Would you show us the glory of your son this morning through the preaching of the word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard announced in the share time, we have a wedding coming up at the end of this week, this Saturday. And as you probably know, this is not our first wedding this summer. Mitch mentioned that. In fact, it's our third. We had one in June, we had one in July, and now we'll have one in August. And we studied Esther earlier this summer. Now we're studying Ruth, both of which feature weddings. So it's clear to me, love is in the air at Christ Memorial Church. Now, if you other married folks are like me, whenever I attend a wedding or I hear of an engagement, it causes me to reflect on my own story of engagement and marriage to my wife, Emily. How couples come to be married, those are often fascinating tales full of intrigue and twists and turns. We like to hear those stories, and we like to tell our stories to others. Now, of course, one of the dangers in retelling these stories is that we tend to make our own engagement stories normative and authoritative for others seeking marriage. I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. We love our own story so much that we sometimes force its contours onto others. You know, like after five years of searching, I finally found my wife at the local bowling league. So you too will find the woman of your dreams after a time of searching if you look in the local bowling league. Now, there may be some broad principles at play in your individual story that, are, that is applicable to others. But in general, I hope you know, doing teachable moments from your own marriage story is dangerous. Now, today we're going to be looking at an engagement story from the book of Ruth. And what I've said still holds true. You're not going to want to derive best practices. <laughs> some of you know this story well, I can tell. You're not going to want to derive best practices for pursuing a spouse from these pages. But it will show us a pursuit worth imitating. It will show us the pursuit of the one who can provide not a home or kids or a house with a picket fence, but the pursuit of the one 
who gives real rest, life, security, both now and in the life to come. It will show us, Ruth will show us, what it looks like to seek that one. So I'm wondering if you know what it looks like to pursue the one who can provide those eternally foundational things for you. Do you know what might be impeding you from ongoingly giving yourself to that one? One who can redeem you out of all of your troubles. Well, let's go together to Ruth and see what it looks like to pursue the Redeemer. Again, our passage today is on page 223 and the Pew Bible there, if you're using that Bible. Now, before we get into chapter 3, a reminder of the story of Ruth up to this point. In chapter 1, we saw Naomi and Ruth find themselves in desperate need. Naomi had lost her husband and two sons. One of those sons was also Ruth's husband. And in addition to what was surely great personal grief, these two women are now without the prospect of provision and protection that comes from having a husband. And though they return at the end of chapter 1 to the land of promise, without husbands or sons, they are living on the edge of poverty with no long-term means of keeping the land allotted to them by inheritance. They've got no sons, they've got no land, they've got no blessing. But Ruth, the Moabitess and Naomi's daughter-in-law, has pledged herself in faith to the God of Israel and to the service of Naomi. And last week we saw her make an effort to provide for both of them by gleaning, by harvesting leftover barley in the fields of Boaz. And to Ruth's amazement, Boaz showed her superabounding favor in word and in deed. And at the end of chapter 2, we found out that this Boaz is not just a worthy man. He also happens to be a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. Now, as a reminder, it's essential background to this story to know that a kinsman redeemer is a technical legal term. It means that Boaz is qualified by Old Testament law to rescue Ruth and Naomi from their troubled and seemingly cursed state. How? Well, as a close relative, he was qualified to marry the widow of the deceased and produce with her a son who would perpetuate the name of the deceased. He was also legally qualified to buy, to redeem the land that belonged to Naomi's husband to prevent it from being sold due to poverty. In other words, a kinsman redeemer was qualified to provide an heir and qualified to preserve the inheritance. And Ruth and Naomi needed both these things. And it just so happened that this Boaz was just such a qualified redeemer. This is where chapter 3 opens. And Naomi, reflecting on Ruth, on Boaz's generosity in the previous chapter, she hatches a plan to get Ruth married. She's doing a little matchmaking here. You see that in her question in verse 1 of chapter 3. She says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now, when Naomi says, seek rest for you, she doesn't mean, should I plan a day at the beach for you, Ruth? She's thinking of finding a husband and children. And you can see that if you flip back a page or just go across the page to Ruth chapter 1, verse 8. Go there with me. We get a little clarity on what Naomi means by Ruth. When Naomi is trying to convince her daughters-in-law, 
Orpah and Ruth to return to their homeland, this is what she says in chapter 1, verse 8. But Naomi said to her her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then drop down to verse 11. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law again, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? So you can see in Naomi's mind that her daughters-in-law should return to find rest in their mother's house because she can't provide it. What is it that Naomi can't provide? She can't provide a husband. She can't give to them any more sons that will bear for them sons. There was no prospect of rest. To have no husband meant no one to care for you and to protect you. And to have no sons was to have no one to do those same things for you in your old age. So no rest meant that you're on the path to, to destitution. So Naomi and Ruth had both lost the prospect of this kind of rest. But the recent interaction with Boaz has awakened Naomi to a way for Ruth to attain these things. That's why she says in verse 2, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? The encounter gleaning with Boaz in his field has reminded Naomi that there is a path to redemption, to regaining what was lost for Ruth when her husband died. And it's not just that Boaz is qualified, as we noted before. There is evidence from the story that Boaz might actually be open to the idea. Why do I say that? Well, he's already demonstrated that he is a law-keeping man by the way he welcomed Ruth into his field to glean. And as Garrett pointed out last week, he even treated her as an Israelite based on her demonstrated faith in the Lord. So there's a decent shot that Boaz, a law-keeping man, will discharge the duty of the close relative, as described in the Old Testament in places like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. And this is something that Ruth and Naomi desperately need. But even beyond his proven righteousness, he's a good guy. He's also already shown abundant kindness to Ruth. He greeted her personally in the field. Do you remember? He invited her personally to his table. He did lots of little things to ensure that she was completely taken care of. Now, was all of that just Boaz being honorable, God-fearing, law-keeping? Well, it's at least that. But it could also be, as Mrs. Potts sings in that classic movie, Beauty and the Beast, that there's something there that wasn't there before. Has Boaz already indicated a tenderness towards Ruth that shows real affection? Perhaps he has. So that's the backdrop for the plan Naomi hatches. So what is that plan? Let's reread verses 2 to 5, chapter 3. See, he, that is Boaz, is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, And anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So Naomi's plan here is pretty simple, which 
isn't to say that we immediately understand it. She knows that Boaz is winnowing the barley that night. It's the end of the harvest. He's separating the grain from the chaff. And after the winnowing is over, there will be a meal. So she says to Ruth, get cleaned up. Go observe Boaz's threshing at a distance. Watch where he sleeps. And when he's done eating, when he's out, go uncover his feet and lay down. And when he wakes up, presumably because his feet get cold, then you do what he tells you to do. And Ruth says, got it, I'll do it. And we as modern readers are left scratching our heads because it's not at all clear what Ruth has just agreed to do to us, right? But before we try to make heads or tails of this plan, let's go ahead and see Ruth execute the plan in verses 6 to 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So Ruth follows Naomi's plan to the letter. Boaz finishes his work, eats, drinks, he's merry, he settles into a sleep at the end of a heap of grain, and he has no idea what's about to happen to him. So, okay, what on earth is Naomi asking Ruth to do here? What is this plan? At first glance, it's at least odd to us, but the more you think about it, you might even consider this plan inappropriate or morally risky? After all, doesn't this plan put Ruth in a pretty compromising scenario, going to this man at night to his bedside? And you need to know, that is precisely what many commentators say about this story. Many commentators argue essentially that it's not just a compromising scenario, but that Naomi's plan is for Ruth to seduce Boaz and thereby force him to marry her. Now, on the surface, that might seem plausible, but I think as the story unfolds, you'll see very clearly that, clearly that nothing inappropriate actually happens here. And I think it's even clear at this point in the story that Naomi has no intention of anything inappropriate happening. Why do I say that? Well, we already know that Boaz is a worthy man. He's a God-fearing, law-keeping man. And Naomi and Ruth want him to take on his kinsman responsibility according to the law. They want him to do something righteous for them. So does it make sense for Naomi to tempt him with wickedness in order to get him to keep the law? I'd say it does not. Also, Ruth and Naomi have been portrayed up to this point as faithful, law-keeping members of the covenant community. Chapter 2 Last week begins with Ruth setting out to provide for Naomi by following the law's plan for the impoverished, by gleaning grain. She provides for Naomi by following the law. Chapter 3 runs parallel with Naomi now seeking to provide for Ruth by following the law, seeking the close relative to marry her. But that parallel totally falls apart. If you think Naomi is trying to provide for Ruth by sending her headlong into immorality, that's not going to bring rest That will bring ruin, both for Ruth and for Naomi. So it's not a seduction plan. Okay, but what is it? Naomi tells Ruth to wash, anoint herself, and put on a cloak. I don't think this is a way of getting beautified for a romantic rendezvous. Rather, it seems to be a way of her indicating that her time of mourning for her deceased husband has come to an end and that she's ready now to remarry. She's to take off the cloak of mourning, put on a normal cloak. She's not to look like a person in grief, but wash and anoint herself. It's the exact same way David is described 
in 2 Samuel 12 when he stops mourning for his young son who dies. Put on a cloak, wash, anoint yourself. So by preparing in this way, by preparing in this way, Ruth is indicating outwardly she's not mourning anymore. She's ready for remarriage. Now as for why Naomi has Ruth go at this place and time, consider the situation in which they find themselves. The barley harvest has come to an end. That's why Boaz is winnowing. That means the window of opportunity for Ruth and Boaz to continue interacting in the fields has closed. Naomi and Ruth are desperate for redemption. They need someone to take them under their care and act on their behalf. But that means Ruth needs to have a private conversation with Boaz without it seeming improper or imprudent to those on looking. And this is a very different place and time. She can't just walk up to him and say, hey, you want to grab a couple of creamies at Rockies? Define the relationship? That's not how things work in this culture. So that's why they choose this time and this place. The uncovering of the feet on a chilly evening is, I think, a way for him to, him to wake up on his own and find her that will be perhaps less alarming than just being stirred or woken up in the night. If you have children, you know that's never a restful experience. So the uncovering of the feet helps him wake up on his own, and it also sets up some imagery that Ruth will employ in her conversation with him. Now, the people who think that this is a seduction, they do have one point. This is a very delicate situation. It's quite an intimate meeting. And even if Naomi and Ruth have no intention of any kind of immorality, the alert reader will notice that the meeting certainly has that potential. So why does the divine author arrange for the story to unfold this way? The explanation that's most compelling to me is tied to the heritage of the two people in this scene. Think of it. Ruth is a Moabitess. That's her nation by birth. And how did that nation get its start? Well, we've already referred to this sordid story from Genesis 19 a couple times in our sermon series, but it needs to be repeated here. Abraham's nephew, Lot, He escaped from the city of Sodom with his two daughters and began living in remote caves far from civilization. His oldest daughter becomes concerned that they'll die in the wilderness without ever being married. They'll have no offspring to carry on the family line. So this daughter takes control of her destiny, gets her dad drunk, and goes into him by night. She becomes pregnant from that encounter, and the son she has is Moab. That's Ruth's heritage. The matriarch of her nation preserved the family line by a sordid encounter that, on the surface, rhymes with this one. And what about Boaz? She comes to him in this very vulnerable moment to ask him for redemption, to ask him to be her husband. But Boaz's heritage on this point is not good either. You know he's a man from Judah, And specifically in this book, he's listed as descended from Judah's son, Perez. Do you know the story of how Judah's son, Perez, came into the world? His birth is recorded for us in Genesis 38, and it comes at the end of another awful, sordid story. Perez comes from Judah's illicit relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Now, we won't go to Genesis 38 and read the whole thing, so let me try to give you a very digested version that's short on the sordid details. Judah has a son named Ur. Ur marries a woman named Tamar. Ur dies without an heir, 
So Onan, his brother, Judah's next son, marries Tamar. Onan also dies without providing an heir. Judah decides not to give his next son, Shalah, in marriage to Tamar. So Tamar takes control of her own destiny and tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into bed with her, and she subsequently has a son, Perez. That's Boaz's heritage. The patriarch of his clan failed to care for the widow in need, and instead the heir came through sexual immorality. So I think those two backstories echo in this scene. It builds tension and makes us more eager to know what will Ruth, the Moabitess, do with this man? How will Boaz, the man of Judah, respond to this widow? These next verses are the center of the story. So let's read verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. What a great understatement. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. You can just imagine his surprise. I thought it was just a heap of barley when I laid down. But now Ruth speaks. Ruth speaks. And she proves by her actions she's not a Moabitess. Not spiritually. She's an Israelite in the truest sense of the word. Look at verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth identifies herself as the one who served in his fields. And she asks him to spread his wings over her or to take her under his cloak. She's not asking for him to share the blanket she pulled back. She's asking for him to take her under his covenantal care. That's the image. It's a common image here, to protect her. It's no less than a request for marriage. It'd be a bit like saying, put a ring on my finger. And notice how she grounds it. She says, for you are a redeemer. Again, this is a technical term. She says, you are a close relative with the legal qualifications to restore to me and to my mother-in-law what has been lost. You can, by marrying me, restore the hope of children, of an heir. You can preserve the inheritance, the land allotted to my desert husband's clan. You can preserve it. You can be the one to give me, to me and to my mother-in-law the protection and the provision that seemed not very long ago to be utterly lost. Now, in asking Boaz to take her under her wings, to be a husband to her, Ruth is actually echoing Boaz's own words to Ruth from their first interaction in chapter 2. Do you remember it? Look across the page at chapter 2, verse 12. This is what Boaz said to Ruth in their first conversation. He says to her, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz had prayed that the Lord would bless Ruth for her service to Naomi and really for her faith in the Lord. And now Ruth asks Boaz to be the one through whom the Lord blesses, to be the one through whom the Lord redeems and restores and shows favor. She is boldly asking him to be like the Lord himself, to care for the widow, to care for the sojourner. He's already done that in his fields with his careful treatment, his brotherly affection, but would he take her as wife? Would he do what the law requires? What will Boaz say? Look at me, look with me at verse 10. And he said, 
May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So Boaz's initial response is not rebuke, it's not bewilderment, it's not even technically an answer to the question per se. He starts by pronouncing a happy blessing on Ruth. It's clear right away, he's glad she even asked this of him. Now if you've understood Boaz rightly from chapter 2, you're not surprised that he responds this way. Still, it's remarkable just how over the top Boaz is in his response to Ruth. Actually, it's very reminiscent of another man in the Old Testament who awoke to his bride when Adam wakes from his sleep. His joy at finding Eve, his bride, is exuberant. So too for Boaz here. He says in in verse 10, he considers this request to marry her a kindness, an honor to him because she hasn't gone after men who are younger or richer. From this, we conclude that Boaz was older than Ruth, probably a decent amount, although we don't know the gap. But he says this kindness she has shown in asking him demonstrates even more faith than her initial faith in leaving Moab and cleaving to Naomi. That's what he means by you have made this last kindness greater than the first. He's saying in making your concern seeking a redeemer to provide for yourself and for your mother-in-law, not just finding a young, rich husband, you've shown faith in a more remarkable way. But actually, by the end of verse 10, he still hasn't technically answered the question. He's just blessed her and marveled at her. He's just so delighted with the prospect of being her husband. But in verse 11, in case there was any doubt, he assures her. He says in verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. He has no hesitation to take her as his wife, to provide the rest and redemption that she is seeking by becoming her husband. And why does he have no hesitation? Because in his eyes, and in the eyes of the whole town, she is a worthy woman. And this is not just some throwaway phrase. This is how Boaz was described in the beginning of chapter 2. He is a worthy, faithful, righteous man. And Ruth is a worthy woman, a covenant-keeping woman. This is the description given to the woman in Proverbs 31. Did you know that? The writer of that poem, King Lemuel, says, An excellent wife. Same phrase, a worthy woman, an excellent wife. Who can find? She is more precious than jewels. Everyone knows that Ruth is a worthy woman, an excellent wife, because of her faith in the Lord as shown by her care for her mother-in-law. And Boaz is quick to point that out. And this is another reason, by the way, that the idea that there's anything indecent or untoward about this encounter is, in my estimation, unthinkable. You'd have to read Boaz as saying, you are a worthy woman, a woman of faith, accepting, of course, the gross immorality into which you just tried to lead me. And I think that's a crazy reading of the text. No, Boaz knows Ruth as an excellent woman is more precious than jewels. So, of course, Boaz is happy to do whatever it takes to redeem, to make her his own. But there is one fly in the ointment. There's one little wrinkle in the plan that Boaz brings up. A small problem that will be worked out in chapter 4. Look at verse 12. He says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. The problem is this. While Boaz is a close relative, a qualified redeemer, there is a closer relative who has the right of first refusal. 
This is perhaps why the idea of redeeming Ruth and Naomi hadn't occurred to Boaz already. It wasn't his legal obligation. There was a closer redeemer. But despite this complication, Boaz makes it clear that he has taken on the responsibility to see to it that whether accomplished through another or by his own hand, Ruth will be redeemed. Look at verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. What assurance Boaz provides. The shame of her widowhood will be removed. The inheritance of the land will not be lost. The hope of seed, of an offspring, of sons is renewed. Boaz is on it. Redemption is coming, and it's coming soon. And in the meantime, Boaz demonstrates the validity of his promise to redeem by the way he treats Ruth after their late night conversation. Look at verses 14 and 15. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So first, Boaz shows the validity of his promise in the way he protects Ruth's reputation. Ruth and Boaz are both aware that her presence at the threshing floor that night could appear questionable. So Ruth rises and leaves early in the morning before others would see her. And Boaz commands his servants not to tell anyone that she came. Boaz doesn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about Ruth, which is again an odd detail for the narrator to include if he's telling a story about immorality. But Boaz, as a man on the mission, takes action to preserve the worthy reputation of this woman. And Boaz also shows the validity of his promise to redeem by sending Ruth away with more barley and lots of it, between 60 and 100 pounds. This is a down payment. This is a pledge. It's an earnest. It's sort of an agricultural engagement ring. (laughs) But it's also more than that. Boaz is already providing for Ruth and for Naomi until such time as he can get this whole redemption thing wrapped up. He's making sure they've got plenty of food to eat. And now this episode ends in verses 16 and 18, right where it began. Naomi and Ruth having a conversation. But this time, it's not Naomi telling her plan to Ruth. It's Ruth telling Boaz's plan to Naomi. Let's read verses 16 to 18. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Naomi immediately understands what all this barley is about. She knows that it demonstrates Boaz's desire to see redemption accomplished and that quickly. What remains for Ruth and Naomi is to wait and watch their Redeemer act on their behalf. And so the story of Ruth has made this remarkable turn. Ruth and Naomi had lost husbands. They'd lost sons. They were in danger of losing their inheritance. Naomi had declared of herself in chapter 1, verse 21, that the Lord had brought her back empty to Judah. But now, in Boaz's words, we see the restoration beginning to dawn. You must not go back empty-handed 
to your mother-in-law. Naomi, who was empty, will be filled again through the union of Ruth and Boaz. They've sought out their Redeemer. He has answered them. A marriage is coming, and with it, the restoration of all that they've lost. Now, this piece of the Ruth story is, in, in itself, a touching story of love and redemption. It's certainly better than a lot of romantic comedies out there. But it has no relevance for your soul until we trace in its lines the story of the Redeemer and the redemption. So let's see him here. Let's see him and let's glory in him. Here we see the true and better Boaz, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the one who receives those who come to him in their need and ask him to be their redeemer. Not those whose hopes have died and lost the prospect of inheritance, but those who are dead in sins with no hope of eternal inheritance, no hope of eternal life. Ruth and Naomi, they dared to hope that because Boaz had shown kindness to Ruth already, that the one qualified to redeem would also be found willing to redeem. And brothers and sisters, we likewise have such a redeemer. Our Savior is qualified to redeem us as true God and true man. He's not like Boaz, an imitation of the Lord. He is the Lord who takes the needy under his wings. He is able to redeem and praise God. He is exceedingly willing. He is eager to save those who come to him. As Jesus himself says in the gospel, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In fact, He bids us come to him. He bids us seek him as treasure to call upon him and find that all who do call upon him will be saved. Like Boaz, Jesus is not just willing to hear our request for salvation, but eager. Boaz's glad-hearted exuberance gives us a window into the heart of the Savior who loved us and gave himself up for us. He delights to make his people his bride. His intention to see our redemption through to completion is not pledged with measures of barley, but with his own precious blood poured out on the cross. His cross, where he was crushed for us, stands as a sign to the whole universe that redemption will be accomplished. Boaz is a worthy man, but he's nothing compared to the worthy lamb, our great bridegroom, the lover of our souls, the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now, as we talk about applying this text to our lives, its most obvious usefulness is to drive us, like Ruth, to call upon our Redeemer in faith, to take refuge under his wings, desperate like Ruth and Naomi, asking him to be the one to deliver, to provide, to sustain, to save us from our sin, and to bring us into the final glory of our inheritance forever. And some of you here, you've never done that. You've, you've never come to this Savior in faith. Perhaps that's because unlike Ruth and Naomi, you don't see yourself in desperate need of a Redeemer. You don't see that you're in a hopeless situation if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ, but you are in a desperate situation. I'm here to tell you that. You might be able to provide for yourself in this life 
for your day-to-day needs, but you will never be able to earn for yourself eternal life. You'll never be able to, by your own merits, remove the stain of your own sin. On the contrary, your life lived for yourself is, is earning for you wages that lead to eternal death. You are on the runway to hell, away from God's favor. You are headed towards eternal suffering, never-ending suffering because of your sins. So you are, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you are in a desperate situation. And there is offered to you now a Savior, a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself at the cross the penalty for sin, who rose, who ascended, who even now offers himself freely to all who pursue him by faith and call upon his name. Now, some of you here who who aren't Christians, you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, maybe you do have a sense, some sense, that you need a redeemer. But you're still not coming to him. You're sitting back, just kind of waiting to see if God will zap you or hand you a, you're an elect card. You're waiting. Rather than doing what Ruth and Naomi do, they go to their redeemer and they plead with him for redemption. I'm thinking of some of you teenagers, those particularly who were on the youth retreat, who we got to hear stand and ask that we would pray for you, that God would save you. We have prayed for you. We are praying for you. I'm praying for you. But you can't sit back and wait for him to zap you. You need to plead earnestly with your Redeemer to save you. Your condition is perilous. Cry out to him. Pursue him with all your might. Do you think he's unwilling from this chapter? Do you think he's unable? Look at the portrait we have in Boaz. He delights for sinners to call upon him. He died to secure the welcome of sinners to himself for sinners like you. So whether this is your your first time you've ever set foot in a church or if you've served in this church for years and years and years, I plead with you, come to the Redeemer. Come to Him. He won't cast you out. Now this call that I've just issued to unbelievers who are gathered here with us to come to Jesus, to call upon Him in faith, that's not just a one-time experience. That's not just the front door of Christianity. That's the whole of the Christian life. Ours is daily taking refuge in Jesus, in our great bridegroom. Each day, we, as it were, renew our vows to have him, to hold him by faith, forsaking all others, of other sources of refuge. We cling to him. We are to have a holy obsession that pursues him and prefers him above all others, that echoes the words of Paul from Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Ruth's pursuit of the Redeemer in faith is to be ours, not just one time, It's the day-to-day heartbeat, pure, undivided devotion, pursuit of this Lord. So what if you're here this morning and you feel like that pursuit, that vibrant faith is waning? What do you do? Well, I honestly think the best thing for you in that instance is to see the Savior in his glory through his word. And I pray that that's what's happened for you this morning, that you've seen the Savior and it's 
caused faith to be renewed and stirred up in your heart. But now let's take that portrait we have here and apply it to some impediments that might be weakening your Ruth-like pursuit of the Redeemer. What might be some impediments? Perhaps what's weakening, Christian, your pursuit of the Redeemer is that you doubt his willingness to go on saving you, to finally redeem you. I mentioned this briefly when I was uh, addressing unbelievers, but it can be true for Christians too. Maybe you question whether Jesus is still actually favorable to save someone like you. Now, you might be thinking that for a number of reasons. Maybe you feel as though your ongoing sin disqualifies you from his care. Yes, you made a good start when you first came to faith, but here we are, years, decades into the Christian life, and still this sin you're dealing with every single day. And you wonder, is the Redeemer going to keep putting up with someone like that? Is he going to keep saving and sanctifying me? Maybe it's not your sin that has you questioning the Savior's willingness, but rather your own estimation of your worth. You think, you know, I'm just not as productive as I used to be or as other people I see, not as healthy. I don't have the giftings of those around me. I don't have the resources. I'm not really sure what I bring to the team here. I can't seem to get my act together compared to the people around me. I never seem to have things right. So why would Jesus want to continue to be involved with me? If there's anything in you that's causing you to doubt Jesus' willingness to save, that's dampening your pursuit of him, let me just direct your attention back to this portrait of Christ in Boaz. Remember that Boaz blessed Ruth just for asking for redemption, just for asking that she could belong to him. So too with Jesus, who does not cast out those who come to him in faith. He is the friend of sinners. Jesus came, he tells us, not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. He came to heal, not those who are well, but those who are sick. He came to redeem, not the found, but the lost. Brother or sister, do you feel your ongoing sinfulness and neediness this morning? Good! Then you have met the one requirement needed to continue calling upon Jesus, the great Redeemer. Do you feel that you are weak and foolish? Good! Because Jesus delights to redeem in order to show his strength and his wisdom. So do not doubt the willingness of this all-merciful Savior. Continue pursuing him by faith. Now perhaps you don't doubt Jesus' willingness to redeem, but rather his provision. You'd say, yes, I get that Jesus is willing to continue to save me. He seems like a very willing guy. But can he really do it? Will he provide for me? I've got a lot of needs. I've got a lot of needs every single day. Is he good for the bill? Is this guy able to to meet all the needs that that I see when I look up at my coming week? Well, yes, if you understand them rightly, he is able to meet your every need. Like Boaz, he is perfectly suited to your need. To give you the inheritance, to the security, the provision you need. You need righteousness before a holy God. Jesus gives you the righteousness of God. You need life from death. Jesus gives you new life by his spirit. 
You need the removal of God's wrath. Jesus becomes your wrath-absorbing sacrifice. You need peace with God. Jesus kills the hostility between you and God by his cross. You need the ability to walk in the law of love. Jesus gives you a new heart and new desires. You need a family to walk with you on the road to glory. Jesus baptizes you into his body. You need a world that's not cursed by sin. And Jesus gives you a new creation. At every turn, Jesus pledges to meet every real need. Is he good for this? Can he actually provide it? Yes, he has bought it with his own blood on the cross. Needs met, needs paid for. So is he willing? Yes. Is he able to provide it? Yes. And maybe you'd say, will he finish the work? Maybe you're very aware this morning as you come in here that you are a work in progress my fellow believer. And if you're not aware that you're a work in progress, you can ask a friend or your spouse. They're aware that you're a work in progress. And some days that work seems to have stalled out altogether. So maybe your pursuit of Christ is dulled by the question of, is he going to complete the construction project here? That perhaps was the question on Ruth's mind after her conversation with Boaz. How could she know he would keep his word to accomplish final redemption? But Boaz pledges it. He gives the down payment. He vouchsafes his commitment with an abundance of barley. And has not our Savior demonstrated to you, his beloved, that he will complete the good work that he has begun? He's already died, risen, ascended, so as to intercede for you. He's already bestowed on you the gift of the Holy Spirit to begin the work of new creation, to give you the power over sin, to gift you for service to his church. And he invites you every week to his table where you enjoy a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb as you await its fullness. So yes, you may have the confidence of Naomi to say, Our Redeemer will see that this matter is accomplished. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the redeeming love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As the Lord lives, Jesus will surely redeem you. And so, brothers and sisters... Let's commit ourselves afresh to this Redeemer in faith. Pursue with all your heart this one who is able to redeem you, who is willing to redeem you, and who will surely bring redemption to completion. Would you pray with me? So now, Father, we ask that you would bless this word so that it would take root within us that the deceptions of the evil one or the tribulations and persecutions, the cares of this world, troubles, riches, would not keep it from taking root, but that it would bear fruit, that it would bear the fruit of enduring faith or new faith, first-time faith in the Redeemer, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.